Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interest in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Welcome to episode 11 of The Brainstorm. We're talking delivery fees and the cost of nuclear energy. And we're joined by two great guests. We've got Tasha Keeney and Daniel McGuire joining us later on. Tasha, why is it so expensive for me to get food delivered now? And how do we fix this problem? Well, yeah, you know, we're, we're talking about this because um, this past quarter, um, but really the past six months, we've noticed, uh, well, for the first time, um, companies that have their own delivery services are noticing that more consumers are opting to pick up items. Um, and so we saw uh, Chipotle, Sweetgreen, saw more uh, pickups over delivery. Domino's uh, partnered with a third-party app, Uber, um, and uh, Postmates, also Uber, um, for the first time. They had their own delivery app for, you know, seven years now. So that, that really, I think, signifies something. And the reason that this is happening is because uh, delivery fees are just becoming astronomical. So if you look at the markup, that's both, both on the menu item price as well as on an, on an actual fee basis and taking into account tip, other things, um, it's 50% on average across these apps. So the average delivery order is something like $30, but um, you can imagine if you're ordering food for a family, for instance, um, that 50% markup could be extremely meaningful. Um, so this started to happen, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, some of it was probably inflation driven as, as costs were going up in general at these restaurants. Um, but also, you know, these these uh, apps, when they first started competing, uh, they were not you know, necessarily profitable on, on these orders. So I think now you're seeing more of a, a fee grab um, from the third party players as well. Um, so, I mean, why do we care about this? I think uh, it just goes to show us why drone and robotic delivery uh, should make a big difference in consumers' pockets in the future. And so, Tasha, just to confirm with you some hard numbers here. So 
it's a 50%, roughly 50% increase in the fees. Uh, and the growth has slowed from, I think you said a peak of 126%, and that was in April 2020. And it's decelerated. And so year over year growth is all the way down to 6%. Are those the right numbers from uh, the brainstorm? So um, 50% is the average markup of the regular. So this is, it would cost you 50% more to order your McDonald's through Uber than to go to McDonald's and pick it up yourself. Got, um, it. Got it. And and that number has has risen over time. We saw growth of over 120% uh, during the peak of the pandemic in, in delivery um, sales. And that's now closer to 6% as of this past June. So an extreme deceleration. Uh, we also saw that confirmed by Instagram. Um, so you know, here at ARC during our morning meeting, uh, this morning, Andrew Kim talked about Instagram growth and they saw about a 5% growth rate every year in a gross merchandise value. So the same thing as gross sales. Uh, so we're seeing that really across the board. I mean, consumers are just rebelling against these really high fees. Um, but I think, I think drones will come to the rescue and uh, soon we'll, we'll love delivery again. To, to what extent here is this just VC money drying up and Right. It's like, you know, VCs were subsidizing unprofitable business models. And now that's no longer the case. Um, you know, also the comparison to Uber, right? They recently, the, the profitable quarter and everyone's saying, oh, look at, you know, mission accomplished almost after years and years of subsidized rides. Um, you know, I, I perhaps at sort of like the smaller competing companies, that's a thing. I mean, because most of these like Uber, you know, has been public for some time. So I, I think that it's it's less VC money drying up for them. It's more um, just that quest for profitability. And we've noticed that their take rate in Eats um, has gone up pretty significantly over, let's say, like the past few years. Um, it used to be in the low single digit percentage points. And now I think it's in double digit percentage points. Um, so, uh, I, I think, you know, it's, as you're hinting at, um, these apps have not always been profitable. They're, they're heavily fueled by incentives. Um, certainly when they first started out, it was VCs that were covering, uh, those checks and, and now it's been the public markets for some time. But, um, but I, I do think that, uh, it, it goes to show that, Hey, look, they, they prove something, which is. Uh, consumers want delivery and fast and convenient is really nice. Um, and, and a certain price point comes with that. Uh, so I think that uh, the robotic delivery options that we expect to be available over the next 10 years uh, will just accelerate that trend. Tasha, two questions for you. One, when you talk about the solution being drones and rolling robots, what do you think that does exactly to the price and just consumption of these types of goods? And then also, who are some of the players to watch in the space that are you know, building the robots um, and drones? Yeah, um, you know, we've estimated in the past that drone delivery could be less than a dollar. Um, but even if it's only a few dollars, uh, that would still undercut today's delivery options, uh, which actually provide a pretty nice price ceiling uh, for these companies that are coming in, as, especially when you're first starting out with delivery, um, you know, they 
it could go as low as as a dollar or less, but they they will be able to charge um, higher fees because again, the, the market's actually here and and proven. Um, for robot delivery, you know, a, a lot of the work that we've done has been focused on uh, groceries in particular. So the assumption is it's like one robot per every few customers. They're grouping orders together. Um, and then you can imagine that it costs in the low single digit dollar range. Um, and I, you know, Sam's done a lot of work on that in, in the past as well. Um, so I, I think it's something that we're both excited about. And do you think we'll still be asked to tip these uh, drones and, and robots? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think I, I, don't, I don't know. I was, I was just at the airport. Not your robot. Have you seen at the at the airport now the self checkout asks for tip? It's like there's no one even around you. It's just it's like uh, I don't know what. I think I think the robots are going to be asking for tips, Nick. That's my take. That's, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to guess yes as well. <laughs> it'll it'll be an interesting social experiment, I, I guess. What what those pressures enable, but you know, if you're at home and there's no one overlooking you on your smartphone, unlike at the airport, um, maybe you'll be less inclined to do so, and you'll be able to save that mm -hmm. money. It's true. And then another thing, Tasha, you and I have discussed and, and seen kind of the ramifications. Uh, when we say rolling delivery robot here, you know, there's a number of form factors that I think come to people's minds, right? There's like the cooler that are on wheels and go on the sidewalk or more along um, smaller vehicles that can share the road. And what are, what are your thoughts on who wins in that arena? Yeah, I think it, it's more likely that it'll be the what I would call the integrated traffic robots that, as you said, share the road uh, with vehicles. Um, one, uh, I, I mean, you're encroaching on pedestrian space less, which I think cities will like more. We saw with the initial rollout of the sidewalk delivery robots that those were being um, limited uh, pretty severely in terms of the numbers that uh, companies like um, Starship were allowed to test, although they, they've seen some more pickup recently. Uh, but I ultimately think it'll be the integrated traffic robot. Um, so it'll be a little smaller than a, a small car, let's say, and it'll be a purpose-built vehicle. So I think some of the ride hailing, the autonomous ride hailing players could start out in delivery, maybe to boost utilization rates, right? We've heard Cruise plans to do that. Um, but over the long term, it makes much more sense for a purpose-built vehicle uh, to do this. Just from a cost Do you think we'll... Do you think we'll have to reimagine infrastructure? Like I think of an apartment building and a rolling robot or several rolling robots trying to, you know, get up to call it the 17th floor. And I think Amazon has solved some of this like package delivery by inserting lockers. Do you think, you know, apartment buildings will have to have kind of a gated off section where these rolling robots or drones drop off and then that's where you actually go down to pick up because getting to a specific apartment I imagine would be a bit of a logistical issue. Yeah, a couple of points. So I'd already say that getting to apartments is a logistical issue. If you talk to anyone that's in a, a high rise, you know, sometimes just a yeah. human delivery person finding their apartment could be difficult. Um, but you're actually hitting on an important point, which is I think that uh, autonomous delivery will be extremely disruptive. Um, not necessarily. I think it, it could forms of it could be available in in dense cities. I mean, it'll basically replace the Amazon grocery little carts that we see now here um, in New York City. Uh, but it's going to be even more disruptive for people outside cities. Uh, you can imagine someone who today, maybe there's like two restaurants that deliver to their house in the suburbs. But um, with autonomous delivery, because you bring uh, costs down, 
maybe it's more economic for more restaurants to, to make that delivery trip uh, via an autonomous robot partner. Um, and, uh, you know, as you said, in the early days, it, it'll likely be easier to deliver to those locations. So I don't think that we should depend on infrastructure changes for this to roll out. I think that might people make those changes longer term? Sure. Um, I mean, I think yeah. this will change consumer habits completely. Like we've talked about at ARC that you might not need a pantry because if you if groceries are so cheap to deliver, maybe you do it four times a week versus the you know single time a week trip that you take now. Um, so I, I do think that we can see things change, but right now the companies um, are, you know, as they should, working to integrate with our existing systems. For, so, for instance, Zipline says they can deliver with dinner plate level accuracy in your backyard. So you don't need like a landing pad or something for this to work. Right. That's really cool. And then maybe just to wrap it up, you just mentioned Zipline. Uh, what, what are the companies that you think are worth watching to see how this develops? Yeah, um, you know, Zipline's a, a really I exciting one. The reason I think that Zipline is so exciting is because um, they they started off in Africa, so they were able to complete you know hundreds of thousands of flights to date. Today in Rwanda, there are more unmanned flights than manned, um, thanks to companies like Zipline. And uh, they started out in healthcare too, which I, I think is smart um, because that's a less price sensitive area because they are so heavily dependent on things like couriers, which are, I mean, we're complaining about consumer delivery fees, couriers, it's like $100 plus um, to get something delivered. So that's going to be an extreme price reduction, even if you can get delivery down to like $20. Um, and they're, you know, they have some uh, key partners here in the U.S. like like Walmart, um, Sweetgreen, uh, you know, that we mentioned today, one of the companies that's sort of feeling this delivery pinch. Um, so I think they have a lot of things, exciting things ahead of them. I would also keep an eye on um, Wing, which is Google's drone delivery project. Uh, they're a little bit behind Zipline in the number of deliveries, but still in the hundreds of thousands. Um, partnered with uh, Postmates, they've done a lot of things out in Australia. You know, sadly, Amazon Prime Air, I, I think, has kind of fallen behind competitors. Um, and then on the uh, robot uh, delivery side, um, you know, companies like Neuro have done some pilots. Uh, we're kind of waiting to see how, how those work out. Uh, you know, Sam, you and I have talked to some of the public companies that have tested out those projects. Unclear to be seen, um, you know, if whether or not uh, that particular you know, those particular projects will make it. Um, but I, I would expect to see, you know, other, other companies enter this space. Great. Tasha, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Now we're joined by Daniel McGuire and we're talking nuclear energy. Uh, but more than that, we're talking application of rights law. Nick, I feel like everyone who's listening probably has some association between rights law and ARC and the research we do. But at the risk of being repetitive, I'll just give a very high level. Rights law is, you know, tied to Moore's law. Moore's law is actually a derivation of rights law. And rights law says that for every cumulative doubling of production, you get a fixed percent cost decline. Uh, and this is important in doing research and projecting technologies out in the future, because you can predict and forecast when you'll cross over a tipping point in demand uh, that could unlock you know, this outsized potential. And, you know, we've done this with varying technologies and now Daniel's done it for nuclear energy, uh, but it's not as clear a picture with nuclear. So Daniel, we, we've got this chart up here. Can you kind of walk us through what's going on? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sam. And uh, thanks, Nick, as well for having me on. Um, before maybe I look at the chart, just to step back quickly as why to nuclear. Um, so over the past couple of years, there's been increased emphasis on solar and wind, but the big problem with there is intermittency. So that means the sun always isn't shining and it's not always windy for the wind farms. So there, there's an issue in terms of uh, reliability. So nuclear is a great solution to this because it can run 24-7 as a carbon-free source of power. Um, so to look at this chart that's up now, um, what we've done here is look at on the x-axis the cumulative power deployed. So uh, this is in megawatts and on the y-axis is overnight construction costs. So what overnight construction cost is, it's the cost of building a nuclear plant as if it occurred overnight. So taking out account of build-up interest for delayed plants. So what's interesting about the US is um, initially there is a clean kind of cost decline curve and there's a nice trend of the dots going forward. And for clarity, what each dot on this chart is, it represents a plant um, connected to the US grid in chronological order from left to right. And as highlighted in the chart, there is a significant uptick in around 1974. Um, and what's interesting about 1974 is this is when the US Energy Re Reorganization Act was introduced. This act um, introduced the, uh, separated the body into the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the Energy Research and Development Administration, which later formed with other bodies to become the what's known as today the Department of Energy. Um, interestingly, this uptick kind of in illustrates the impact that regulation can have on costs. Um, and what we are currently in the process of doing is looking at well, had this regulatory change not occurred, what would the cost decline have been um, post uh, change? Um, and that's kind of where we're at now. It's, it's like I said, it's a work in progress, but I, I would like to highlight too, there are other factors and not just this regulatory change. So uh, nuclear has been known over the years for its uh, disasters. You have the Three Mile Island accident in 1979, Chernobyl in 1986, and, and more recently Fukushima in 2011. So there are external factors, um, but we think this chart is kind of just a, a high level way of illustrating how regulation can impact nuclear. And so, Daniel, I see, you know, one of these, the lowest points at this inflection, it looks yes. like maybe it was $1,000 uh, overnight capital cost per megawatt deployed. Mm -hmm. And then I see this black dot all the way at the very end. What is what does that black dot represent? Yeah. So the the kind of the tipping point is in 1974, it's around $2,200. The black point represents the Vogtel plant, um, which was actually brought online a couple of weeks ago. Um, that is roughly around $8,000. Uh, so a roughly four time increase in costs. Um, and I'd like to clarify as well, all of these costs are in 2023 inflated levels. Um, so comparing apples with apples. So it seems like the regulatory burden here and uh, protesting as well has really impacted the costs here and just, you know, rough ballpark. I know it's still work in progress. Um, how, how much money has been spent, you know, fighting these battles that could have otherwise been used to keep driving costs down? What's kind of that delta there as far as money lost because of, of what's going on? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so as I mentioned, if you were kind of to follow the trend line um, and continue it on post-1974 at the rate of progress, at the rate of cost decline that was occurring, um, in the US alone, this would imply uh, roughly $345 billion um, wasted, quote unquote. Um, 
So that is the difference between what the cost of plants post 1974 cost versus what they could have cost had the cost decline continued to uh, occur. So it, it's quite interesting in that regard. Do you think that, and I'll ask this question to both of you, because I know you've both spent time looking at this space. Do you think that there's a renewed interest in nuclear? And I know this is more fission or this is fission. Now you have fusion making waves and you're hearing a lot of news. Is that part of the reason there's this renewed interest in the space? Yeah, um, maybe I can go first, Sam, and then you can add on. Um, so I definitely think so. And even from a regulatory per, um, perspective too. So there is this new um, advanced uh, reactor development program. So A uh, or DP, which is set up by the Department of Energy. And they're encouraging uh, a new form of nuclear energy. Um, well, it, it is nuclear fission, but in a smaller form called mm -hmm. small modular reactors. Um, and for context, this wasn't available back in uh, the day where the chart was illustrating the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, a lot of it is to do with this new fuel called trisofuel, um, which brings a contamination on the fuel level at a pebble level, as opposed to having the requirement of large construction buildings to contaminate um, or to contain a potential uh, leakage. Um, and comes with that is uh, a lot more cost efficient methods of, of building these plants in terms of time. Um, but yes, yeah, I'm interested to know what your, your thoughts on that. Well, I, yeah, I'd just say, you know, the small modular reactors have definitely garnered interest. One of them came out, I think, via SPAC. Um, there are a number out there, private mm -hmm. companies as well. Uh, I think countries are looking at it as well. You have prices that went crazy with, you know, the co commodity spike with the war in Ukraine and Russia. Um, so all of these kind of led people to rethink and say, okay, you know, what does our energy base look like? And you know, if you look at that chart, nuclear is now four times more expensive than it was. Um, really, there shouldn't be a reason for that. You know, it is a technology cost should continue to de decline. So clearly, there are outside factors at play. And if governments can get on board with this and clear the path for this, uh, I think you know we've seen that it can be done safely. Uh, and it can be done cost effectively to be a key part of the energy future. Mm -hmm. And just to add to that point as well, as in why now? Um, so the International Energy Agency, they um, explicitly state that nuclear is going to be a foundation for achieving a net zero carbon 2050 target. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of lit a spark under countries and, and they're starting to reevaluate uh, why nuclear is, is, should be part of the solution going forward. And I know this is a separate topic and probably another full topic that we should discuss at some point, but fusion, what are your thoughts on that? I've seen a lot about it in the news, but curious, is the progress that's being portrayed true um, or are we still very far away from that reality? I think we still have some time, uh, even with the small modular reactors, you know, the plants that are coming online or plan to come online are end of this decade. Uh, and those are kind of first build outs. So, you know, I think it is exciting. You know, there's just, I think another paper that came out, the, there's like net positive energy, but mm -hmm. it was, it's not really counting the full energy spectrum, right? It's like a lot of energy to set it up and then you do the experiment and you get a small net positive. Uh, so I think we still have, we still have time here. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. All right, Daniel, thank you. We look forward to uh, seeing where this research leads and we'll, we'll probably have you back on when you wrap it up. 
Yeah, great. Thanks uh, for having me, guys. And um, going forward, I'll be posting a lot of charts on Twitter and stuff. So um, if anyone wants to follow me at D McGuire Arc um, to stay up to date with it. Nice. Nice. Good plug. Good plug. <laughs> a worth Cheeky a worthwhile. Plug. Yeah. A worthwhile well, someone, follow too. Someone asked actually on yeah, uh, yeah, one of the true. one of the YouTube comments. So there's your okay, answer. Okay, there you go. There's your answer. There you have it. All right, Nick. Any anything going on? Any questions we want to answer from last week? I didn't see many. Um, I guess maybe the code code word at the end is not working. Um, so if people have other thoughts or just want to send us questions without a code word, please feel free. We we do enjoy getting them. We do enjoy answering them, and uh, hopefully uh, we can continue that. But yeah, um, and, I think that's and our video our show. last week we got flagged because I think we were talking about climate. And YouTube, YouTube flagged us because climate is controversial. Apparently. Maybe not a good idea to call out YouTube for flagging us. This All right, video no, you, will now probably get flagged. YouTube is great. YouTube's great. <laughs> exactly. All right. I think uh, we'll wrap there before we do any more harm to our, to our show. Um, but thank you, everyone, as always, for listening in. Um, and and that, that's our show. See you next week. See you next week.